0: is Crimes of the Centuries. The family gathered in a modest house on a stretch of Country Road in Money, Mississippi had heard rumblings that something bad might be afoot. There had been ominous warnings from others in the neighborhood that this thing wasn't over yet. Today, we would consider the thing they were referencing so stupid it was hardly worth talking about, much less acting upon. Yet, sure enough, two men drove up to the house in the early morning hours on August 28th, 1955, ready for trouble. Sunday morning,
1: about 2.30, uh, I heard a voice at the door. And I asked, who was it? And it said, this is Mr. Bright. I want to talk with you and the boy, and when I opened the door, that was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and flashlight in the other.
0: That was the boy's great uncle, a man named Moses Wright, whose life was forever altered by this overnight visit. The men weren't screaming, but their voices were firm as they pushed into Wright's house. Wright and his wife pleaded with the men to leave. They had two sons asleep in the house, as well as the 14-year-old nephew being sought. And it was clear by their gun that these men weren't looking to have a calm conversation. Simeon Wright, Moses Wright's son, remembered the voices waking him up.
2: Fear just gripped me because in my heart, I said, I'm getting ready to die. And at 16, I wasn't ready to die. And I could just feel like the whole bed was shaking. And in these guys come with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. And for some reason, I closed my eyes and I opened them and they just passed right on by me, went to the next room.
0: He wasn't who they wanted. They were looking for the out-of-towner, the kid visiting from Chicago, the one who they said had the audacity to talk smart to one of the men's wives. They wanted Emmett Till. Even if you don't know the full narrative, chances are the name Emmett Till might ring a bell. Maybe someone mentioned it during Black History Month or in the civil rights section of your history class.
3: This is a narrative that almost without debate serves as the preamble to the civil rights movement.
0: This is Benjamin Salisbury of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center. You'll hear more from him later. Now, I've noticed that we here at Crimes of the Centuries get a little pushback when we cover a case connected to racism, as though racist crime should fall squarely into the history category and nowhere near the true crime column. I beg to differ. Of course, this is a crime story. It started out as a kidnapping, then progressed to something so nightmarish that it affected the whole world. It's just that usually this tale is told in a way that, intentional or not, emphasizes the supposed reason for the crime, which isn't done in most other homicide cases, and for good reason. When you focus on the supposed motive, even to underscore how ridiculous that motive is, you're still offering an explanation for it, which teeters awfully close to excusing it. So I'm going to spend less time on the bullshit why here, and try instead focus on the people this case is really about. And to do that, First, I'll back up to 1921, which is when a baby girl named Mamie was born in Mississippi. It's hard to really grasp what the 1920s must have been like for people of the time. Industry was booming. The economy seemed impervious. The influenza pandemic was over. And sure, you weren't allowed to drink booze thanks to prohibition. But even that had a workaround, so long as you knew a bootlegger or two. Now, that's not to say things were idyllic by any means, especially not for people of color. There had been a rash of race riots in the so-called Red Summer of 1919. Two years later, a vibrant stretch of Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street, was utterly demolished in what became known as the Tulsa Massacre. Some 300 people died over a two-day span. Another 800 were injured and 9,000 people were left without homes. Segregation was, of course, rampant, either by law, mostly in the South, or by practice. But 60 years had passed since slavery was outlawed, and if you were Black, you could, on paper at least, own a house and a business, even a car. Mamie was born to parents Nash and Alma Carthen, Black sharecroppers. After Mamie came, Nash left Alma and the baby behind to find work near Chicago. There, he got a job at Argo Corn Products on the southwest side. The company had built a new $5 million plant in 1910 and was a huge employer where workers made things like cornstarch and cooking oil. After he settled into the new gig, Nash sent for his wife and daughter. And this was a huge move.
4: Chicago was a land of promise.
0: This is Mamie as an adult in one of countless interviews she gave over the years. And they thought that milk and honey was
4: everywhere. And so it was a lot of excitement leaving the South, leaving the cotton fields. You could hold your head up in Chicago. By
0: 1930, the family had settled in a house in Summit on 63rd place, which they shared with Nash's brother and sister-in-law. To give you a general sense of how things were at the time, when you look them up on the census, you see that their white neighbors' homes are listed as being worth four dollars to $5,000. Homes owned by black people are listed with values in the double digits. The Carthen home was worth $25. I don't know if the houses were the same, but the value was lower because a person of color owned it, or if those houses were significantly inferior than the other houses. But either way, it's a big discrepancy. Mamie's parents wanted what all parents want for their kids. A safe home, a good education, the chance to make something of herself. And they were a bit overprotective as they tried to ensure that she got all three. The predominant goal for women at the time was becoming a wife, not a scholar. And Alma Carthen didn't want that for her daughter. So Mamie was intentionally sheltered. When she was 13, her parents divorced. The upheaval had to have been stressful on Mamie, who seemed to throw herself into her schoolwork to deal with the turbulence at home, which suited Alma just fine. Mamie wasn't allowed to date as a teenager anyway. The approach was successful. Mamie was one of the first black students to graduate from her high school in Argo. Not only that, but she graduated at the top of her class. After graduating, she became one of the first black women in town to hold a civil service job. At age 18, Mamie met a brash boxer from Missouri named Louis Till. Her mother wasn't a fan, so Mamie dutifully broke up with the guy, but he proved to be persistent. In hindsight, this tale probably should have served as a red flag, but when Louis learned that Mamie was on a date with another man, he showed up to fight for his woman. Mamie was overcome by the gesture. In 1940, she and Lewis married. A year later, they had their only child, a son they named Emmett Lewis.
4: It was a very difficult birth. He was a breech baby, and they had to get him turned around and so forth and so on, which caused a whole lot of misery and pain.
0: But the hardships of the delivery were quickly overshadowed. Emmett, who was nicknamed Bobo, was an easy baby, his mother said. He was the happiest baby
4: in the world. It looked like he said, free at last, I'm here, I'm free, and
0: nothing phased him. As Mamie's mother had worried, it turned out Louis Till wasn't the ideal husband. Mamie learned while Emmett was still a baby that her husband had cheated on her. She also learned that his violent nature wasn't restricted to the boxing ring. When she left him, it was because he had choked her to unconsciousness. She got a restraining order, which he repeatedly violated. Finally, a judge gave him a choice either serve time in prison or join the U.S. Army. In 1943, Till chose the Army. Two years later, Mamie learned by telegram that her husband was dead. He'd been executed in Italy by the U.S. government for willful misconduct. Mamie had no idea why, but she found it curious that his death came in July, two months after the war had ended in Italy. She'd only learn the reason later, when people were trying to justify what happened to her son. After her estranged husband's death, Mamie received his scant belongings in the mail. Included was a signet ring with the initials LT. Now a widow, she relied on her mother Alma to help raise little Emmett. As he grew up,
4: it was more like we were sisters and brothers almost, because my mother raised him while I went to work. So it was like he was hers, and I knew I was hers. And we had fun
0: together. We laughed together. When Emmett was six, he contracted polio, a disease caused by a virus that once was common in the US, but isn't anymore thanks to vaccines. When Emmett caught it, the vaccine was still about eight years away. The illness can damage motor neurons within the spinal cord and brainstem. In Emmett's case, that translated to a persistent stutter that he just couldn't shake. But it didn't seem to bother him. In fact, nothing seemed to
2: he was the center of attraction
0: this is his cousin wheeler parker junior
2: he loved pranks he loved fun he loved jokes you know he just was there in the center of everything never had a dull day in his life i mean this guy is full of fun i remember saying to myself i sure hope he doesn't do anything silly or crazy because he loved to make people laugh
0: no doubt you have a friend who cracks jokes at everything so much so that you worry they'll get you into trouble for the record i have no such friend because it's me But Emmett was one of those friends.
1: Emmett was mischievous. He liked to play and he had no sense of danger.
0: This is another cousin, Simeon Wright.
1: Everything was funny to him. And uh, he shot some uh, firecrackers within the city limit, which was a no-no. He didn't do things like that. But to him, that was funny.
0: Now, for the most part, this wasn't a problem in Chicago. Sure, Emmett sometimes got in trouble for saying something smart or seeming disrespectful or shooting fireworks, but he was always forgiven because it was never mean-spirited. He was silly, aiming for laughs. Who can stay mad at that? Mamie Till had been unlucky in love. Her marriage to first husband, Louis, had fallen apart before his death, In the early 1950s, she remarried a man named Gene Bradley, but a few years into that marriage, she learned he was seeing other women, so she piled his clothes on the lawn and filed for divorce. By 1953, Mamie was alone raising her son Emmett, then a preteen. Though, according to a book, Mamie would eventually write, it kind of sounds like the two were raising each other. Mamie would go to work at the Social Security Administration while Emmett would keep the house clean and cook dinner for the two of them. And for a while, their only regular company was their dog named Mike, though a new man slowly started entering the picture around 1954. Mamie was falling for a barber named Gene Mobley. Emmett liked him too. That Christmas was a big one for the family. Mamie gave Emmett a new suit while Jean added a hat, tie, and coat. If you've ever seen a photo of Emmett, chances are he's wearing these Christmas clothes. By all accounts, Emmett was an interesting mix of goofball kid and self-sufficient young man. He'd hop buses to travel an hour to go to church alone. He once darted around town solo, paying his mother's Christmas bills. He could be trusted to do those things, But if you asked him to run to a store that happened to be near a basketball court, chances are he'd ditch that errand to shoot hoops. In other words, he was sometimes reliable, sometimes not so much. Pretty much a typical teenager. As the summer of 1955 approached, Emmett learned that one of his cousins was traveling to Mississippi to visit relatives who still lived there. That was pretty common for families who had moved in what's known today as the Great Migration. That's the period from 1916 to 1970, in which 6 million African Americans moved out of the South to other parts of the country.
2: Back in those days, every summer, they sent people, children, to the South by the thousands. I mean, that's what we did. And it's still now, you go down around the 4th of July, you're going to see a lot of cars from the North in the South, not just Mississippi, but Alabama Georgia and other places.
0: Wheeler Parker was the cousin headed south. He said his parents had been reluctant to okay the trip, though not because the trip was to Mississippi, a state that was fighting integration tooth and nail, which isn't a subjective characterization. Here's a cheerfully racist news clip I found. A situation
5: exists in Mississippi that is unlike the situation in most states in the nation. In some sections of the state, there is a preponderance of colored citizens. This situation has brought problems. It has created challenges. But most important of all, it has inspired a social system to meet the challenge.
0: Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruling that established racial segregation in public schools as unconstitutional, was passed in 1954. Mississippi officials We're still passing laws trying to protect segregation as late as 1958.
5: In every community in Mississippi, there is segregation of the races. Drinking fountains are segregated. Restrooms are segregated. The local theater is segregated.
0: Still, it wasn't Mississippi on its own that worried Parker's parents. It was the idea of Emmett tagging along with him to Mississippi. Emmett was a cut-up. And they were painfully aware that his sense of humor might not fly in that state.
2: It'd be a problem because uh, the Mississippians, what he thought was just fun or a joke, wasn't funny to them.
0: In later interviews, Mamie would talk about how foreign the idea of racism was to her as a child and then later to her son. And that's not to say they never experienced any. But Mamie's parents had sheltered her from the worst of it. And again, this was Chicago, Chicago progress was slow going but it was measurable in Illinois. Employment discrimination had been banned in 1933. Housing discrimination in 1953. In short there were racists but they were being challenged and bit by bit the courts were upholding those challenges. I mean that's the world she lived in and the world in which she raised her fun-loving son. The South might as well have been another country altogether. Jim Crow laws were rampant, and this went far beyond separate water fountains and seating sections, though that's all bad enough. In Mississippi, it wasn't just illegal for a white person to marry someone with one-eighth or more quote-unquote Negro blood, but it was illegal to publish or circulate written material promoting the acceptance of interracial marriage. And these were just the codified rules. There were tons of unwritten ones, ones that people were outright killed for supposedly violating. After all, Mississippi led the nation in lynchings. Following these rules wasn't optional for those who lived there. It was literally a life-or-death matter. That's why Emmett Till's cousins were so nervous about him coming to Money, Mississippi. So Mamie had a heart-to-heart with him before he left. She told him, If you're accused of something, don't argue, don't fight, Stay safe. Remember, you're not in Chicago anymore. On August 21st, 1955, Emmett and Wheeler arrived in Money, Mississippi to stay with Moses Wright, their sharecropper great uncle. He's sometimes called Mose without the ending S, but according to the documents he filled out himself, he was Moses and one of his children was Mose. Anyway, when Emmett arrived, it was cotton harvest season.
3: I wasn't old enough really to pick cotton and Emmett wasn't either. So we just played around in the field most of the time.
0: Now, if you're not familiar with sharecropping, it went like this. After slavery was outlawed, former slaves were looking for work and former slave owners were looking for workers. So they devised a system that looked awfully similar to the old ways. Workers, often black, would live on land owned by someone rich and usually white. In exchange for being able to live on and harvest said land, the workers paid the plantation owners with a share of the crop they harvested. This was legal because the workers didn't have to stay there. They were free to leave, in theory anyway. Shady landlords, of course, figured out ways to ensure that their workers stayed indebted to them. They also backed laws that sometimes made it illegal for sharecroppers to sell crops to anyone but their landlords. There's a reason PBS has a program about sharecropping titled Slavery by Another Name. But Wheeler, speaking as an adult in an oral history, remembered those times fondly. Because the memories he had weren't tainted by what picking cotton would come to symbolize. He was just a kid outside, playing with his cousins.
2: It was a wonderful time, you know, just didn't know anything else. I tell people, I say, I love picking cotton. I love the country. They say, you didn't know any (laughs) better. So I didn't stay there long enough.
0: On August 24th, so just three days after he arrived in Mississippi, Emmett and his cousin stopped by a store called Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market from a newscast.
5: Most of the customers at this store were Black workers from nearby cotton plantations. The store was owned by a white couple, Roy Bryant. And his 21-year-old wife, Carolyn, who was behind the counter the afternoon that Emmett Till and his cousins came in to buy some candy.
0: Wheeler went in first and bought something or other. Years later, he wouldn't even be able to remember what. And Emmett went in after him.
1: That's when they sent me in to make sure that he didn't say anything out of line.
0: If Emmett had said anything before Simeon Wright entered, no one let on. According to a woman interviewed in 2005 by filmmaker Keith Beauchamp, He asked for 10
4: cents to get 10 cents worth of bubble gum. He put the money into her hand, just like that.
0: And she junk her hand back. And so far, this sounds like just about every pre-debit card convenience store visit I've ever made. Emmett paid for his gum, and he and Simeon left the store.
1: We didn't have any conversation with, uh Mrs. Bryant, we left together. She came out of the store and went to her car, which was parked on the north side of the store. And as she was going to her car, that's when Emmett whistled at her.
0: Emmett, a fun-loving, stuttering, goofball of a boy, whistled at the woman who'd been behind the counter, probably to make his cousins laugh, maybe to even try and make the woman laugh. But she didn't. She headed to her car, the boys thought, to get a gun.
1: No one knew that he was going to whistle. And when he whistled, he scared everybody in the butts. And when he saw our reaction, he got scared.
0: Everyone panicked.
1: Including Emmett. We jumped in the car, and when we got in the car, the car just wasn't moving fast enough.
0: As they sped down a gravel road, they noticed a car was tailing them. They figured someone was chasing them, so they pulled to the side of the road and started running.
2: We ran down through the cotton field, And as we ran through the cotton field, the cotton bowls were kind of green. They were hitting our legs, and some of us fell over each other, and the car went right on by. So we said, well, nothing to that. And uh, Emmett Till begged us not to tell our grandfather uh, what happened, and we didn't.
0: You can imagine the relief they must have felt. They went on home and said nothing of the incident. A girl named Ruth Crawford approached them soon after and warned them. You're going to hear more about what happened that it sounded a little melodramatic.
1: And I didn't think nothing of it because I'd never heard anything like that before.
0: Three days passed. Three whole days. This is one of those details I didn't fully appreciate until doing this research. I knew the overview of this story, but it didn't click that three full days had passed. Three days to calm down, to realize how stupid they were being, to allow reason to prevail. It was three days before anyone made it clear that Emmett's whistle wasn't going to be forgotten. It's not totally clear when Carolyn Bryant told her husband about the teenager who had whistled at her as she walked out of the couple's meat market on August 24th, nor is it clear precisely what she told him he did. What we do know is that in the middle of the night on August 29th, Roy Bryant and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, showed up with a 45 caliber handgun to Moses Wright's house.
1: I woke up and I, I, I looked. I saw two men standing over the bed with the one-headed gun, which was J.W. Milam. I saw uh, Roy Bryant. They ordered me to lay back down and go back to sleep, and they ordered Emmett to get up and put his clothes on. And my mother was pleading and begging with him not to take him. My dad was pleading with him. And my mother then at that time offered to to give them money to leave uh, Emmett alone. And Roy Bryant kind of hesitated, but J.W. Mylan, he didn't hesitate at all. He didn't even think about taking money. He came there to take Emmett, and that's what he proceeded to do.
0: Then, just 16, Wheeler Parker said he heard one of the men ask Emmett if he was the boy they sought, to which Emmett said, Yeah. The man replied, you say yeah again, and I'll blow your head off. Then Moses asked where they were taking Emmett. Roy Bryant replied, nowhere if he's not the one who did it, which is a bit odd since Wheeler had heard Emmett cop to it himself. Regardless, Wright heard the men ask a woman in the car if they had the correct boy, and he said that she replied yes, they did. Till was then forced into the car. Later that day, the local sheriff visited Bryant and Milam. Moses had ID'd them as the men who had kidnapped Emmett from his house. Bryant and Milam admitted, sure, they'd grabbed the boy in the middle of the night. But when they asked Carolyn Bryant if he was the one who had whistled at her, she said no, so they let him go. Jeez, they asked the sheriff. Hasn't he come back yet? We left him on the side of the road and just assumed he'd find his way home. The first headlines about the case are confined mostly to Mississippi because it was, at that point, a local story about a missing kid. The next day, the story spread a little because it became clear that Emmett had been kidnapped for doing something so benign. The day after that, the missing team was national news, and Sheriff George W. Smith said that his whereabouts were the, quote, $64 question. He added, I'm kind of scared there's been foul play. Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping August 29th. They maintained they had no idea what happened to Emmett Till.
5: On August 31st, 1955, three days after he'd been abducted, Emmett Till's mangled body was found by a boy fishing in the waters of the Tallahatchie River not far from Money.
0: The condition of the body was so horrifying, he couldn't immediately be identified. Moses Wright was called and asked to try. He managed to, because on the corpse's hand was a signet ring with the initials LT. It was the ring the military had mailed Mamie after Louis Till died in 1943. Emmett had been wearing it. Mamie, who by then knew her son was missing, got the call she'd been dreading at 9.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Now, I'd mentioned earlier a Sheriff Smith. He was in Lafleur County, where the kidnapping occurred. The body was found in neighboring Tallahatchie County. The sheriff there was a guy named H.C. Strider, who immediately tried to argue that the corpse found wasn't Emmett at all. To get a sense of him, here's an interview clip from the 50s. We went ahead and bleeped out the N-word, because screw this guy.
1: We never have any trouble until some of our southern go up north and the NAACP talks to them and they come back home.
0: Strider said the body recovered from the river was an Emmett's, that it belonged to an adult. He'd even go on to testify to this. He told reporters that he was sure Emmett was alive and well, living with relatives in Detroit. The murder story had been concocted by the NAACP to make Mississippi look bad. If there's a hell, I hope Strider has a front row seat. Benjamin Salisbury, whose voice you heard earlier, is a much better person than I am. About Strider, he simply said, You know, he
3: definitely didn't exhibit, I think, the best version of himself.
0: Of course the body was Emmett's. Swollen and bloated, he had clearly been dead for days. A 125-pound cotton gin blower had been tied to his neck with barbed wire in an effort to sink him to the river's bottom, but his feet had floated to the surface. Sheriff Strider knew that the condition of the body would cause an uproar.
4: Sheriff Strider wanted an immediate burial because he knew that it wouldn't be good for the state of Mississippi for people to see what had happened to Emmett Till. And the only way you could stop people from seeing was to bury it, I mean, get it out of sight. I don't know what authority he had to bury my son, but he took that authority.
0: Mamie fought this and managed to get the burial stopped. Emmett's body was returned to Illinois, where his mother insisted she looked at what remained of her only child. What she saw barely looked human. Instead of describing the infamous sight, I'll explain what's believed to have happened to Emmett to cause the injuries. He was beaten so viciously that all but two of his teeth were knocked from his head. One eye had been knocked from its socket and was resting on his cheek. It appeared he'd been choked by the way his tongue bulged from his mouth. After all that, he was shot through the head. Everyone assumed Mamie would keep his casket closed. And if she had, her son might have been quietly buried and thus been little more than a footnote in history. But because she insisted that he be put in a box beneath glass to keep people from both touching and smelling him, he instead became a catalyst.
5: Some 50,000 people, nearly all of them black turned out for Emmett Till's funeral in an enormous public display of grief and solidarity.
0: And when you read the news stories of the time, they're pretty telling. Early on, it's reported that Emmett had whistled at a white lady, which is, as far as we know, the truth. That's what witnesses have said from the beginning, that he just whistled. But as the days pass, the story shifts to be that he insulted the woman. By the time Carolyn Bryant would take the stand, The tale would be that he'd put his hands on her while saying vulgar things. Of course, that's bullshit. Emmett had a severe stutter that would have made it hard for him to say anything, much less the strangely mature words that Carolyn put in his mouth. But regardless, it doesn't matter. He was a 14-year-old boy. Think back to the riskiest thing you did as a teenager. I bet it was actually physically dangerous, and yet you lived. Meanwhile... Emmett Till whistled, and he died.
3: This was a child, (laughs) just being a silly child.
0: It's worth noting how the media treated Bryant and Milam, two murder suspects and confessed kidnappers. The latter was photographed during the trial getting a playful hug from his five-year-old son. The caption read, Young Bill seems happy to climb over his daddy. This is how a reporter described Bryant.
2: Roy Bryant is a rather youthful-looking man. Someone on the handsome side, too.
0: Emmett, meanwhile, was described simply as a, quote, "'Negro lad,' end quote." Even the articles that decried the death did so in backhanded ways. Newspapers ran editorials that said, "'Hey, this is awful. This isn't what Mississippi is about.'" And then the columns would go on about how, "'Yes, we want segregation, but it needs to be done peaceably.'" So, you know, racism's okay, but geez, folks, you gotta stop short of murder. One editorial I found denounced Emmett's death while also taking issue with the NAACP's decision to label it a lynching. Well, that was just mean, they said. Now, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam had been charged with Emmett's kidnapping in one county, but after the discovery of his body, that charge was replaced by murder in the neighboring county. The state appointed a special prosecutor to handle the case.
5: They did willfully, unlawfully, feloniously, out of their malice forethought, kill and murder him and kill a human being.
0: The legal system promises expediency, which nowadays would make anyone charged with a crime chuckle because, good God, is the system slow. But it used to move faster, especially when officials wanted to sweep a crime under the rug. Five weeks after Emmett's death, an all-white, all-male jury heard the case against Bryant and Milam. They heard testimony from two black witnesses, one man, one woman, who said they saw four white men carry Emmett's corpse into a plantation barn a few hours after the kidnapping. Two others were supposed to testify, but they strangely disappeared before trial they re-emerged afterward and explained that Sheriff Strider had put them in jail under assumed names. After an hour's deliberation, the jury acquitted Bryant and Milam of murder on September 23rd, 1955.
5: It's all over, Roy. How about you? I'm just glad it's over. J.W.? I'm too. Uh, Mrs. Bryant, uh... Oh, how about you, Mrs. Milam? Did you expect this verdict? Well, I was hoping for it.
0: Mamie made headlines for her calm, collected condemnation of the verdict. What I saw was a shame before God and man and the way the jury
4: chose to believe the ridiculous stories of the defense attorneys. I, I just can't go into detail to tell you the Silly things, these stupid things that were brought up as probabilities, and they
0: like a fish swallows a hook. Just anything, just any excuse to put these two men. The next month, a couple of senators leaked to reporters that Emmett's father, Louis Till, had been executed by the US Army. The Tills knew that, of course, but they hadn't known why, at least not in any detail. All the telegram had said was that he'd displayed willful misconduct. It turned out he'd been accused, along with another officer, of raping two women and killing another. He denied it, but was found guilty and hanged. In a strange twist, the American poet Ezra Pound had been a jailmate of tills and had mentioned his hanging in one of his poems. This revelation was like Christmas for people who had wanted to believe that Emmett got what was coming to him because now they could say, see, he was destined to turn out just like his rapist dad, which is, of course, ridiculous. That news story broke in October. The next month, a grand jury was asked to weigh whether Bryant and Milam should be tried for kidnapping, a crime they'd readily admitted to two separate sheriffs. The jury declined to indict them. Two months after that, Bryant and Milam sold their story to Look Magazine for $4,000. Through that story, they confessed outright to killing Emmett Till. They'd intended to whip him, scare him straight, something like that. But he didn't react the way they thought he should. He was defiant, they said. His mother had told him before he left Chicago to bow if he had to, to avoid wrath from racist whites in Mississippi. But If Bryant Milam were telling the truth, he didn't. Maybe his conscience wouldn't let him. They beat him and beat him and then finally shot him. That night, they burned his clothes and had the nerve to complain that his shoes took a long time to incinerate. Now, Benjamin Salisbury, whose title is...
3: Public Engagement and Museum Education Director at the Emmett Hill Interpreter Center.
0: But who emphasized that this is his personal opinion doesn't think Bryant and Milam were truthful when saying Emmett defied them.
3: I say that because there's nothing stated in that in that confession about the abduction that took place in the home, a home where other folks were there, and he complied without any real resistance. So how and where does this, you know, otherworldly bravery kick in when he's miles away from, from, from his family or folks that he knows? or from what he would believe to be a safe place. Now, when he's in imminent danger, he now has this, you know, just unbridled whatever to stand against him. Like, it goes against science.
0: If you think about it, Emmett's immediate reaction after seeing his cousins react to his whistle wasn't to fight back. It was to run. He saw their faces and the gravity of what was at stake hit him. And that's why they fled. That's why, when they thought they were being chased by a car, they hopped out and ran through a field until they were out of breath. It's why Emmett begged his cousins not to tell their parents what he had done. He must have been terrified. Regardless, Bryant and Milam kept complaining about Emmett for the rest of their lives. After confessing the crime, they were shunned by many who had supported them, people who had apparently bought their story, that they'd merely nabbed Emmett and let him go unharmed. At one point, Bryant told an interviewer that Emmett Till ruined his life. Anyway, both Bryant and Milam are dead now. They both died of cancer in 1980 and 1994, respectively. The case from time to time has been resurrected over the years. In fact, it had technically been open when I started writing this episode. The Justice Department reopened the case in 2017 after a book was released quoting Carolyn Bryant as saying she made up some of the allegations against Till on the stand, specifically that he'd grabbed her hand and made an advance. But on December 13, 2021, the Justice Department officially closed the case even though witnesses have come forward saying that Milam and Bryant weren't alone when they killed Emmett.
3: We know that they weren't the only two participants. We have good reason to believe that anywhere between four or possibly as many as seven people, like a literal gang of adult men, murdered a child and or witnessed or participated to some extent or another in the torture and murder and brutalization of of this child.
0: Till relatives have long said that as long as someone is alive to prosecute, they want to see it done. They want justice. And some certainly are still alive. Carolyn, for example, is in her 80s now, remarried with the surname Donham, still alive in Mississippi. Mamie Till married Gene Mobley, the boyfriend who had bought Emmett his wide-brimmed hat, and spent the rest of her life telling her son's story, making sure his name was never forgotten. And while the details are sometimes lost, Emmett's name hasn't been. There are Emmett Till memorials and streets, a museum and talk of a national park. Plus there's the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crimes Act, meant to revive cold cases of civil rights-related murders. Strangely, though, Emmett's story can still, all these years later, Be divisive. One memorial was repeatedly vandalized and shot at, finally prompting a bulletproof replacement. Which is, of course, infuriating and disgusting, but it's almost as if what Milam and Bryant claimed about Emmett in his final moments became true of him in death. That is to say, they claimed he was defiant. They said they wanted him to grovel, and he refused. They ordered him to agree with their assessment that he was worth less because of his skin color. and that Look magazine story, J.W. Milam said, We were never able to scare him. What else could we do? Salisbury's likely right in his assessment that this probably isn't true. Emmett likely didn't bravely stare down his killers because he was a 14-year-old kid, so how could he? But it's almost as if he's been staring them down every minute since his death. Sixty-six years later, he refuses to bow. To research this story, I watched the oral histories of several witnesses, dug up contemporary news coverage, watched Keith Beauchamp's documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, and read Devery S. Anderson's Emmett Till, The Murder That Shocked the World and Propelled the Civil Rights Movement. I also, special thanks to my friend Naomi Patton. Thanks, NRP. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.